It's um, always a privilege to get to open God's word with you. And I feel it. I think I say that maybe to you every time that I preach. I mean it every time. And I feel it very much today since this will be the last time that I get to open God's word and preach to you until September. And um, I'll try not to get emotional from that. Um, the Lord has been so good to us. He, he loves his word. And he loves his people. And, um, and so it is a sweet thing. Uh, and we wanted specifically, um, we're having a meeting after this um, to do all the, the praying over each other because we didn't want to make today about me going on sabbatical because this is how Jesus builds his church. And this is going to be served week in and week out by competent shepherds who love and wield God's word with faithfulness. Um, and so I'm just going to get to miss being here, doing it with you. But um, I'm so grateful for the season of refreshment. Thank you, brother, for praying over our family. And we do covet your prayers while we're away uh, as a church. So if we don't get to catch you after this at a member meeting, please do be praying for us, and we will be praying for you. So if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 12. And it's the aim of our pastors always to preach as dying men to dying men. That's always a, a aim of preachers. I want to preach every single one of these like it could be my last sermon. And I would love it as a church if we listened to every sermon like it's the last word from God you're ever going to hear. Because that is how eager we should come to God's word how much we should take it up with fear and trembling every time we get to open its pages. So we get to go to Exodus 12, and the subtitle that's been added for your help and aid in the scriptures has the same title as the book. You'll notice that this morning. So we finally have come to the Exodus itself. This is the moment that we have been waiting for, that the whole book that we're reading gets its name from, where we see the deliverance of the people of God. And so it's also going to be the title of today's sermon, The Exodus. But if you're a note taker, it's God's salvation of his covenant people. And so in honor of the reading of God's word, I invite you to stand with me. And we're going to begin in verse 29 and go through the end of the chapter. This is God's holy word. We read, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, and as you have said, be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sakoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among your people. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought out the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the fullness and the richness of your word and the greatness of your salvation. Thank you for all the ways you have demonstrated that you are mighty to save, the ways that you work your salvation for your people, the way that you work your righteous judgments in the earth. Lord, I pray now for a real humble faith in the hearts of your servants, your children. Would you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church? Lord, give us hearts that are eager to respond in faith and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I want to take this text in pieces today. It is really staggering if you think about how long we have waited to, for God to deal sort of this death blow, this knockout punch to Pharaoh and to Egypt and how it comes to us at the beginning of our text in one verse. So we've been, had this lead up all this time and then there's one verse that we begin with where the 10th plague is poured out and then the rest of our passage is Egypt's response to that plague and the exodus of the children of Israel and then God giving them more, another law about remembering this moment. So we saw last week this was going to reset Israel's calendar. This was the great redemptive act of God in their history that they would measure everything else by and that all throughout this chapter, he spends most of it focusing on how important it would be for them to remember this moment. So we're going to look at the faithfulness of God. Um, this in first section that we're looking at is God's faithfulness to save his people. And then we're going to look at him saving us as a covenant community. So those are going to be our two main headers of our time together. God, his faithfulness to save his people and that he saves us in covenant community. When we first see God's faithfulness in him keeping his promises. So I don't want you to miss multiple times in this passage passage he highlights on that very day he brought his people out of Egypt that's how our passage ends in verse 51 on that very day and in verse 40 through 42 you can read that the time of the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years on that very day all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt so what is the significance of that? What, why would God insert that here? And what is that meant to draw you back to? The significance of this 430 years was that it had been 430 years since God first appeared to Abraham and gave him this promise. Where in Genesis chapter 12, God is creating the people of Israel. He's creating the covenant people of God and saying, Abraham, I'm, I'm calling you out. It was Abram at that point. I'm calling you out to be my people. And he was bringing him into his covenant, his relationship, and he's giving him these promises that I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing, and I will bring your descendants into this land, and through your offspring, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And so... In Genesis 15, 
Abraham believes these promises of God about the coming offspring, who would be Christ himself, and God's word says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, that Abraham became righteous through faith in God and in his promise concerning the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Abraham asked God in Genesis 15, how will I, how will I know? You're, you said you're going to bring me into this land. How will I know that you're going to be true to your promise? This is what God tells him in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers, fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So here's God making these massive promises to Abraham. And he's got it all lined up on a timeline. Now, I want to address a dating issue with you right here. And not dating like you're going to take somebody out on a date. But this dating of the Exodus. Because there are people who will look at this passage or look at God's promise to Abraham and say, look, the Bible can't be trusted. And there's a lot of kids that go off to college and they say, well, we just kind of glossed over the hard things, and whenever I had questions, they couldn't answer them. So I'm going to go with the professor that thinks he knows. So the issue is, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says that the law was given 430 years after God made his promise to Abraham. So from Genesis chapter 12, to three months after our passage right here is 430 years. Now, there's room. If, if God wanted to say to Abram, your descendants are going to be sojourners in a land that, that, that is not theirs for 400 years, and that language could be from now, right? That they're going to be for 400 years from right now. They're going to sojourn in a land that's not theirs. If your kids asked you what time it is, and it was 12.02, this is going to be a pretty based example for some of you, and you say, it's noon, and then they know how to tell time, and he goes, eh, goes and looks at the oven to double check, he says, well, it's 12.02, you would be like, what? So tell that to the college professors when they're like, hey, your, your descendants are going to be uh, sojourning in a land that's not th theirs for 400 years from now. And they go, 430? Now, the other potential solution to this is that Paul is talking about from when God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to the giving of the law, and that Genesis 15 happened 30 years later, almost 30 years later after the point, and so it is 400 years from that point that we would come to this moment. So it is helpful to know that this language in the Hebrew that's used for lived means this sojourn in a place. And so an alternate reading of verse 40 could read, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And any Jew reading this would know 430 years from what? Since our inception as a people, since God revealed himself to Abraham and made us these great promises, we were sojourners we, who lived in the land of Egypt. It's been 430 years. And that is why in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, says in Exodus 12:40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel during which they dwelt in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan was. So the point is, and I'm, we can go to other examples, Stephen's sermon and others. The point is there are real answers to be found in the text and that the Bible is reliable. But the point that God is making is not go check my math. 
the point that he is making is on the very day. So I want you to marvel at this. God has been working his judgments and working salvation for Israel, and he has worked it now to a very day, to the day, a 430-year anniversary to the day of when I made the promise to Abraham because I said that I would. And God always keeps his promises, every single last one of them. And he's reminding them in this moment in saying that, he's reminding them of their identity as the covenant people of God. These were the chosen people of God, the people who belonged to him on the basis of his grace through faith because they're children of Abraham, the believer. And he was working everything according to the counsel of his will, according to his perfect wisdom and perfect timing and reminder that the scriptures say that these Old Testament scriptures were given to us for our instruction so that by the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope, that you might actually have endurance. So you can know that God is working everything in your life to the day, to the small detail of your life, that he is sovereign and in control. So we see his faithfulness in his way he's keeping his promises. We also see his faithfulness in him judging the wicked. I want you to miss the heaviness. That is verse 29. Behold the wages of sin. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, and all the firstborn of the livestock. That is a lot of death. And they deserved it. Just picture the whole nation of Egypt. I think sometimes before like actually meditating on this verse, you might think, okay, we're talking about Cairo. We're talking about, you know, maybe in Ramses. It says in the entire nation of Egypt that was under Pharaoh's rule that worshipped false gods, that exchanged the truth of the one God for what was created, the, the people who all throughout the land of Egypt had taken the children of Israel, their firstborn, and had cast them into the Nile. And this was God's just retribution for their treasonous rebellion against him, for their oppression of his people. And it was swift and awful. Awful does not mean unjust, but you do need to behold the severity of God and his judgments in a way that highlights his holiness and his righteousness of what sin against him truly deserves. So that you would look at this and actually believe God was actually being merciful to them. He took the firstborn, which was a symbol of the fruit of their strength. So when they're singing about this in Psalms later, they say, the God who struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt, striking the first fruits of their strength. So God was hitting them in their strength. Every, all these from Pharaoh who thought he was God, who thought his firstborn son was God, to all the pride of man. He was striking them and giving them the wages of their sin. But the truth is, they all deserve to die, just like Israel. And God was being measured and exacting in his judgment. But when he acted in one verse, swiftly, it just came and went. The whole nation is swallowed with death and with anguish. And Pharaoh is struck with this urgency in sending out the people of God. And it highlights the victory of God who doesn't bargain with sinners. He doesn't make deals. He, he, he calls us to obedience and he holds forth a standard just like Jesus in his response to the gospel. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. And there is no bending of a standard. So God this whole time has held forth, let my people go, all of them, with all their cattle and their herds that they may worship me in the wilderness. Pharaoh went from who is the Lord that I should obey him to no to you can go out, but not with your cattle too. The men can go out, but not the families. All the while trying to, in his pride, barter with God. And God said, this is what 
you will do. These are my terms. And then by the end of it, Pharaoh is sending his servants to grovel before Moses, pleading with them to leave urgently under all the terms that God had originally given. This was, <clears throat> we've been doing this thing at our house. My, my boys uh, are just arm wrestling each other to death. And so I'm thinking about this example because we do this and I have to establish that they are very strong but not the dad. And so my game with them is just try to physically move my arm. And I can, I can toy with them and I can slowly bring them down and do whatever I want. And then when I decide to, their arm is on the table. Now, I tell you that not because I feel very strong being able to be adolescent children, but this is what God is doing with Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks that he is bargaining with God, that he's pushing back, that he is strong, and God breaks his arm on the table when he decides, at the moment he decides. And he has been slowly, at his pace, beating him to demonstrate his glory and his authority over the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh has not moved God's arm one inch, and God has been slowly beating him to toy with him and then to physically break him at this moment to where he is pleading with them. God, please, take, y'all, go. The whole, all the people are like, quick, let's get them out of here. We're all going to be dead. And Pharaoh's just in this desert place where he's, pitifully asking Moses, please just bless me on your way out. But there is no blessing. Abraham, God promised Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And here Pharaoh is experiencing the curse of God. And he's longing for the blessing after the fact, but he would not listen despite all the warnings. And now he's wanting the blessing of God when it was too late. So it will be for all those who exalt themselves against God. And we see here what we have seen often in our study of the scriptures, that, of the, scriptures, that the judgment of the wicked, remember from two weeks ago, the wicked being those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, those who will not be saved at the last. The judgment of the wicked is part and parcel of the salvation of the righteous. That those who are made part of his people by grace through faith will be saved and delivered from the presence of sin forever when God finally at last judges the wicked. And it will be swift and awful. And it will showcase God's holiness and his mercy towards us. And that's what we also see God's faithfulness in saving his people by the blood of the Lamb. So just remember that while verse 29 is happening in all of Egypt, verse 23 is happening in Goshen and in everywhere else where there's a Jewish home covered by the blood of the Lamb. Reminder, that God told them the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. We covered this all last week. So if you weren't here last week, and go listen to the sermon. But we are praising God, just like the Israelites here in this passage, because the only means that God has given for salvation is the blood of the Lamb. That was always pointing ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we're not saved based on our nationality or our race or our obedience or how our religious performance they were going to experience the judgment of God along with Egypt if they did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And so we see God's faithfulness in providing them with his means of salvation that was pointing ahead to Christ all along. And then last, we see God's faithfulness in him leading them in the triumph. So you can see this in our text, this language that we've, we've seen it promised, but now we see it enacted where they ask the Egyptians for their goods on the way out. And the text says, thus they plundered the Egyptians in verse 36. Now, in case you, you probably not, 
worried about the justice of this. They've enslaved them for 400 years. So you can see this as kind of a, a reparations of sorts where God is giving Israelites all that they should have had from all their time of working in Egypt for free. But if that's the case, note that it is God who is riding the scales, right? That it is not them going and saying, we're going to overthrow Egypt and we're going to get ours. It is God saying, all you have to do is watch and be silent and I will fight for you. And then you have only to ask your neighbor and they will gladly give it to you and there will be a real dread of you on the people. But the bottom line is that all of it belonged to God and he can do with anything that is his as he pleases. He could totally empty your bank account and give it to somebody else and not have to ask you about it. He would be perfectly just in all that he does because it all belongs to him and they all deserved death. So anything short of that is mercy. But this verse, when it says that Israel's plundering the Egyptians and the, the dread of the Israelites is on the Egyptians and they are walking out, I don't want you to miss the point. The point is that God is bringing out his people triumphantly. This is not uh, some World War II scene where you see Jews escaping by night under the threat of Nazis searching them out. This is not them like barely, uh, you know, escaping with their lives at nighttime just so that they can sneak away. This is them rising up, having done nothing but obey God, and them walking out, 600,000 men plus women and children strong, with a mixed multitude following. They asked for all their stuff. They urgently gave them all of it, and they're walking out triumphantly. And the language of God brought them out by their hosts is of military walking out by their troops. This was the army of God whose victory was by faith. And because they trusted God, God was leading forth his hosts out of Egypt without them lifting a finger in the battle. And they were triumphant. So much so that as they remember this in Numbers 33, verse 3 and 4, it says, On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So you can see visibly this great contrast between the wicked and the righteous, of those who make God their trust and of those who reject him. These people are burying all the first fruits of their strength while the other people are walking out triumphantly. And it may not have looked like that was always going to happen as you live in the land. And right now it feels like you are being persecuted on every side or living under oppression, praying, how long, O oh Lord, till you deliver us in your current moment? But this is the end of all who make the Lord Jesus Christ their trust. He leads us triumphantly. And not so. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. They are here, to, here today and gone tomorrow. So with each of these, I want to look with you. So we see... God's faithfulness and the salvation of his people. But I want to look with you at the new covenant reality of these truths in Christ. So just as God is faithful to keep all of his promises, God's word says that all God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. He has kept and will keep every single last one. And he will do it on the very day that he has appointed. So you can rest in knowing that whether it's a personal promise to you or a promise based on his word, he will keep his word. His timing may be different than you want or you hoped, but on the day that he has appointed, he is faithful to his promises. And don't forget that Pharaoh represents the God of this world. And so all of this foreshadowed Christ's triumph over the enemy and the deliverance of his people out of our captivity to Satan and out of our slavery to sin. And so in Luke 9, 31, at Jesus' transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come to Jesus and it says, Luke records that 
they came to the Lord Jesus to speak of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the word for departure is exodus. They came to talk to the Lord Jesus about his exodus that he was about to accomplish when he went to the cross. And so Colossians 1 verse 13 and 14 says that Jesus has delivered us or God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That Colossians passage is what the Exodus is all about. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, our Egypt, and he has transferred us out. He's delivered us out and he's done it by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have been forgiven of our sins by the blood of a lamb and brought out of slavery into his freedom. And then in the next chapter, Paul writes that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So just as God shamed Pharaoh in Pharaoh coming and groveling and pleading for a blessing on the way out while he capitulated to all that God had commanded, God shamed the devil in the same way at the cross. Just put him to open shame in the way that he triumphed over him in forgiving sinners and in disarming him of his one weapon, which is to accuse you of sin. And if he can take away your guilt, he's got no weapon to accuse you. So he rips him weaponless and triumphs over him, disarming him from the weapon that he has against his people. And now he's leading us in triumphal procession. So God's word says that in anything that you go through, in any suffering, in any trial, God has made you more than a conqueror through him who loved you and has redeemed you by his blood. And now he's leading us, even as he takes us through suffering and death, into his righteousness and his life. And he's working everything for the good of your conformity to Jesus and for his glory. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance, fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so this, that picture of Israel walking out triumphantly is what you are doing now in life as he leads you in the triumph. And just as God's judgment came swiftly on Egypt and itself was the salvation of the righteous, so it will be at the Lord Jesus' coming. As Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, just as he did to Egypt, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. How swift it'll come. Just the equivalent of one verse and he's here. There will be no opportunity to repent, no opportunity to ask for a blessing for those who rejected him, who refused to believe and obey his gospel. But how blessed will be those who came to him by grace through faith under the blood of a lamb. That will be the only hope in that day is that you're covered by the blood of Christ. And truly we will all bow before the lamb on the throne and exclaim, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we see God is faithful to save his people. He showed us in pictorial form in his deliverance and exodus of his people out of Egypt. 
and he has worked the same for us in Christ, who has become our exodus and has redeemed us from our sins and has given us a sure hope that he will be our refuge at the last when he comes on that day to judge the living and the dead. But we also see that he rescues us as a covenant community. God has emphasized in this passage, this chapter for us, the real importance of Passover and unleavened bread to remember this great redemption. And I think I looked at it, I didn't go through and count super carefully, but the chapter is 51 verses and over 35 of them are about the memorial meals. They're about the festivals. They're about remembering far more than the actual deliverance itself because it was so vital for them. I want you to remember this feast. I want you to remember my salvation. I want you to remember that you were saved by the blood of the lamb without lifting a finger. I want you to remember my grace. I want you to bow down and worship me and teach these things to your children and their children as a covenant meal forever. I want you to be a people holy to the Lord. I want your life to be free of sin. I want you to live like you've been redeemed. Remember, remember. And so you see, even in this passage, this reference to them leaving with the unleavened bread and it's all hearkening back to what we talked about last week with being a holy people to the Lord and living lives that are blameless before him. But then our text ends with this institution of the Passover, your heading might say, and he says, there's one law that I'm giving to you concerning this Passover. You, you must remember to keep it throughout your generations, but no one may keep it who has not been circumcised, right? No male may keep it or his family if he has not been circumcised. Now, this was important because I, you, you probably noticed a couple of times we've referenced there's this mixed multitude that went up with them. I don't think I'd ever seen that before studying for this sermon. But the text says, see if we can find it together, 38, verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So this mixed multitude could be a lot of things. It could be Egyptians who feared God and feared Moses and maybe they didn't place their trust in the God of Israel yet, but they just knew with this display of power and the, the hopelessness that was their idol worship in Egypt that they were leaving with these people. Or it could have been other oppressed peoples that Egypt had enslaved and now they were seeing an opportunity. Just imagine like an army of people leaving and just kind of sliding in and being like, okay, <laughs> we're walking out. I'm with these people. And so this whole mixed multitude went out with them. And so God gives, this, gives them this command. No foreigners allowed to come near this meal unless he wants to become part of the people of Israel. And then there's a way. And so circumcision was a mark of becoming part of the people of God. And I, we need to explain it just for a bit, and then we're going to new covenant reality in Christ, and we're done. So this is huge because God is showcasing from the beginning that being part of his people was not about being natively Hebrew, natural-born Hebrew. It's always been by his grace through faith in the coming offspring of Abraham, trusting in God, trusting him for his salvation. And it was open. So we read that this week in Ruth, if you're doing our reading plan. Here's a Moabitess who left her family and the life that she knew to cling to Israel's God. And she became great-grandmother of David and in the line of Christ, one of the mothers of the Messiah. And so God gives us these pictures all throughout. This is an open invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. But you must come by the means that I have appointed, and it will cost you. You must come to the end of yourself and the end of your life in order to find true life in relationship with me, in covenant with me. And so that is what circumcision always represented. And we said this in our God of Abraham series, 
If you don't understand circumcision, the New Testament's going to be really confusing because it's mentioned 275 times in the New Testament. And so, as a refresher, if this is like, oh man, I don't understand this, this is kind of really weird why he would have that as the rule for this meal. Circumcision was given by God to Abraham in Genesis 17 as a marker or a seal of the covenant, of being in covenant with God. So God invited Abraham into covenant, and he said, all your males must be circumcised. And it was a symbol of the cutting away of your strength, of your natural man needs to be cut away so that you are relying wholly on God and living in relationship with him. And Paul emphasizes in Romans 4 that circumcision was basically happened in Genesis 15, I mean 17 after Genesis 15. So he's saying, look, the covenant was based on faith. Abraham placed his trust in God and God credited it to him as righteousness. And then God gave him circumcision after the fact as a seal or an outward sign of this inward reality that he had come to the end of himself and he had placed his trust in God instead. And so this was a real entrance into covenant community. God is making this invitation to this mixed multitude that has followed. No one's allowed to come near this covenant meal that marks my salvation of the covenant people of God. But if you would come to the end of yourself and you would place your trust in me, you would enter into my covenant, then humble yourself and go by the means that I have appointed and then you will be marked out as part of my people. And so, it had always followed faith as an outward seal of belonging to the covenant. And it was always a picture of what God desired to happen in their hearts. So you can read that in Deuteronomy 10 or in Deuteronomy 30, that God calls them to circumcise their hearts. This is always a, this outward symbol of an inward reality that you belong to the covenant community of God who has put off the old self and has placed their trust in God. And so, those were the people who were invited to this covenant meal who were allowed to partake of this remembrance of their salvation. And so this was for any who came to God by faith, any who received in their bodies the seal of the covenant, whether they were naturally born Hebrew or they just snuck in hoping to be delivered from Egypt and then later heard of God, heard of his wonders, heard of the coming offspring of Abraham in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they say, that's my God. I want to follow him. And they, had, they were strangers to the covenants and promises. They were not part of, naturally, the people of God. But if they would humble themselves, place their trust in him, and receive the mark in their bodies of belonging to the covenant, they would become part of true Israel. And so there's this new covenant reality in Christ where Paul writes to us what circumcision was picturing all along in Colossians 2. In verse 11, he says, In Christ also you were circumcised. This is your story, church. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so he's saying, look, there, you have been, that passage is saying, you have been crucified with Christ. The cross of Christ is described in this text as the, the circumcision of Christ, that he was put to death in the flesh, but by amazing covenantal realities as the head of a new humanity. God's word says that when you place your trust in Christ, you were in him and died with him so that it wasn't just him dying for you, but you died with him. And you can say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. That is the reality of having a, a circumcision of heart. I have been crucified with Christ. 
And I have died. The old me, the independent me, the one that ruled my life and was my own authority, I have died. I have been baptized into Christ Jesus. That is a spiritual reality. And he gives us physical water baptism as an outward expression of that spiritual reality that pictures I have been buried with Christ in baptism into his death so that I might be raised to walk in the newness of his life. And so baptism is this outward symbol in the same way that circumcision was of an inward reality that precedes baptism where we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we come to him by faith, turning from our sin and placing our trust in him alone for our salvation. We acknowledge that we are getting off the throne of our own hearts and we're inviting him to come have his rightful place. That is a circumcision of heart and a baptism into his death so that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. And baptism is the marker of that. It is the entrance into the covenant community. It is why we fence the table that he has also given us as the covenant meal where Passover was what they were to celebrate every single year. And nobody who was uncircumcised could partake of the meal and remember the salvation of God if they weren't willing to come to God by the means that he had appointed. And so we will fence the table when we partake of the Lord's Supper and say, this meal is for any who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and have followed him in believer's baptism because this is an outward sign that was a matter of obedience that followed faith to say, yes, I have placed my trust in the means for salvation that God has given for my life. I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and I belong to Jesus from head to toe. I expressed it in my baptism I belong to him, and I have a claim on this covenant meal. I'm remembering the salvation that redeemed me. I'm remembering my exodus with the people of God because I belong to the people of God. And I have expressed that through baptism, which is what corresponds to circumcision. Nobody who has professed faith in Christ but has refused baptism may partake of the covenant meal. Because it is a matter of simple obedience. Just like circumcision was hard and it was humbling and it was a ritual that may have seemed hard to explain to some people. And baptism is hard and it's humbling and it, it seems strange to people. But it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of humbling oneself before God and saying, I don't even understand all the significance of what's happening right now but I'm appealing to God for a clean conscience and I belong to him. And so I'm going to obey him. And so how could somebody know? I, I, you think about it this way. If somebody says in, from the mixed multitude because they're eating their share of the manna and they loved it, hey, I want to belong to Israel's God. And they just professed faith in Israel's God. How would you know if they really belong to the people of God? I tell you what, if somebody comes forward to be circumcised, him and his whole household, he means it. <laughs> and in the same way, baptism is the step of obedience to say, I mean it. Now, surely there were those in Israel who were circumcised outwardly and had not truly placed their trust in Christ, just like there are those who receive the seal of the covenant in baptism who shouldn't have ever been baptized in the church that they were in because they hadn't truly placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it wasn't circumcision that saved them and it wasn't baptism that saves us, but they are outward signs of an inward faith and reality of what has happened to us as we have been crucified with Christ and have been raised to walk in a newness of life. The life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. So as we come to the table, I want you to know that the exclusivity of the table 
serves the proclamation of Christ to those who would observe it. Because to those outside of Christ, it's his bid to them, his call to them to come and die to themselves. That to come to him for forgiveness of sins and for the gift of peace with God and eternal life and not to have some false assurance that they can be uncircumcised in heart and have Christ at the same time. And so it is a way of loving them and communicating to them, no, if you have not placed your trust in Christ and have not followed him in believer's baptism, then please stay seated and consider the claims of Christ and believe his gospel. But it is sweet remembrance for the people of God that we have been delivered, literally exodused, from our slavery to sin and the devil's captivity. So may we join in heaven's song with all of our hearts this morning, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And with confidence, believe that every single person that he's ever made will one day bow their knee to him and will exclaim to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Amen, Father, we, we exclaim that with all of our hearts. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We praise you that we have been redeemed, not by perishable blood, but by the blood of Christ, the imperishable blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I pray that we would be faithful to remember and to bow our heads and to worship. I pray that if there are any in the sound of my voice who are outside of Christ, that they would flee to Christ for refuge. That they being here, maybe being part of the mixed multitude that is among your people, would hear the truth of the gospel and that they would leave their own lives behind. That they would turn to you in truth and place their trust in Christ for the remission of their sins and for peace with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your blood is sufficient to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that you truly have brought us out. And you are bringing us into that heavenly country. We long for home. We pray together. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.